0: we go into 2022 here, we have such a unique opportunity in front of us really to make a bigger impact on creating pathways into the middle class because some of these jobs that are open, a lot of these jobs are open, are good-paying jobs. But we need to train people up, scale them up to be able to access those jobs.
1: Beginning in March of 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic sent shockwaves through the American labor market. Millions of Americans lost or left their jobs, and employers are having a harder time than ever recruiting workers. From government leaders to economists and academics to business leaders and employees, everyone is asking the same questions. Where is our workforce? How has the pandemic impacted them? And what does it mean for the future of work? I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the next few weeks, we're digging into these questions with a three-part series on our changing workforce. This week, we're joined by U.S. Secretary of Labor and former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh to discuss what's behind the workforce changes and how the government has and will continue to react to these changes. Good morning, Secretary Walsh. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining me.
0: It's great to be on here again, Jill. Last time I was on, I was in the Eagle Room.
1: I know. The good old days. So you started your role as Secretary of Labor in March of 2021. Can you tell us a little bit about what you stepped into and how your experiences back in Boston prepared you for your current role?
0: Absolutely. Uh, You know, I stepped into a big government. The Department of Labor represents, you know, anywhere from 180 to 280 million people in America. It's a completely different role than mayor, but being mayor of Boston really guided me to really think about how do we get things done for the American people. It's taken me probably a few months to get acclimated to the job. You're building a team on Zoom. Pre-pandemic, you know, we helped put the team together and then when the pandemic hit in March of 2020, I knew the players and, and I knew what everyone was doing. And you come here and literally you meet three people and everything was on Zoom. And even to today, you know, we're not fully back here yet at the Department of Labor. So I still haven't physically met a lot of the team around me. So it was building a team. Uh, it was as, as a government. It, it takes a while for a government to gel together. Ten months in now, completely different feel here. Uh, have a lot better understanding of how the government works. Uh, certainly we've been able to to really move some good programs forward, working on job training and changing the way we do job training, working with community colleges all across America. We have them in Massachusetts uh, and they do some amazing things, but community colleges do some amazing things around the country. So it's been, you know, tough transition for me, leaving, being mayor, loved, loved being mayor, become secretary of labor, a completely different role, but I'm settling in here now.
1: So when you're a mayor, though, you're very hands-on, right? You're an operator. You're running the city. You're running the ins and outs of the day-to-day, and and you probably see things work or not work very quickly, and you can shift. How is that different in your role now, where you're sitting on top of such a large institution, and how do you think about how you make changes happen, and how do you judge whether or not it's working?
0: Well, it really happens two ways. Number one is when I'm traveling, and I do a lot of traveling, I've traveled, I believe, 31 states over 60, 60 cities since I've been here. That's a hands-on job. It's like being mayor. I'm out there. I'm talking to people in the community. I'm writing stuff down. I'm coming back. And that's helping me really figure out when I come back here, how do I push the federal government to, to change and adapt quicker? The first few months, it was slow. Uh, and still, even now, it's it's not overly fast because there's there's layers of government here that, that Republicans and Democrats have laid down over generations, I think, just, just for, for the mere process. But The American people want it now, want it today. They want change today. They want to see it in front of them. And I've been trying to bring that that culture to the Department of Labor even quicker now. And I think as we move forward here, we're getting some things on. Example, supply chain, big supply chain issue. A lot of people know, heard about it. Ships in the Pacific and Atlantic not coming to shore. The Atlantic side, our side, the East Coast side, not so much of a supply chain issue as far as ships coming in. On the West Coast, there's, there's still about 65 ships in the, in the ocean that have not come in yet. As we dig down into that, one of the biggest issues we see is trucking. So what we did was the Department of Labor partnered with the Department of Transportation and we came up with an apprentice program. So within two days, we can get companies signed up for an apprentice program and we can start bringing apprentices in into companies to create more opportunities for trucking. 50 companies have already signed up actually in the first week. So what we're trying to do there is, first of all, get more truckers in this country because we have a shortage of truckers. Number one. And number two, bring back the pride in that job that that was and is a middle class job. That was a job where people were able to raise a family on, put food on the table, put a roof over their head. And and over time, that industry was just taken apart, whether it's by independent drivers or independent companies. And what we're doing now is is we're adding some more support to that. Uh, We had a briefing at the White House with the president, with the trucking companies, with the independent trucking companies. And they're all looking for one thing, looking for better wages, better jobs, better opportunities. And more drivers. So that's an example of hands-on how you can make a quick change in our country. And we're trying to do it now also as we talk, I'm sure we'll talk in a little bit about the labor shortage. How do we get more people trained and into these jobs that are happening?
1: Well, let's talk about that a little bit because it, it looks like the employment market is in recovery. We have over 10 million jobs open compared to little almost almost 7 million jobs that were open in February of 2019 before the pandemic hit. Are we recovering? Do you feel like we're recovering from a jobs perspective?
0: We are recovering. I mean, obviously, but we have several ways to go. I mean, last year, the president laid out a plan. We were able to add 6.4 million jobs to the economy. Our unemployment rate today in the United States is 3.9%. We knocked nearly 3% off the unemployment rate in 2021, which is the largest decrease since the 1940s in one year. But we still have challenges with filling jobs and hospitality in, in different areas. And What we're trying to do here is looking at the job training money and workforce development money and the apprenticeship allocations, and how do we change the way we deliver those services? And I think it's going to be vitally important for us to work with businesses. Today, when you think about 21st century, you're thinking about different types of jobs, tech jobs and manufacturing jobs and different types of manufacturing jobs, clean energy jobs. So we have a unique opportunity right now to really think about how do we create job training programs around the country? to fill those jobs that are open. As we go into 2022 here, we have such a unique opportunity in front of us. The president has such a unique opportunity in front of us really to make a bigger impact on creating pathways into the middle class because some of these jobs that are open, a lot of these jobs are open, are good paying jobs. So now we need need to train people up, skill them up to be able to access those jobs.
1: It is interesting, right? We were looking through the Labor Department's numbers and what struck me as... I, I, maybe you can explain this to us. Maybe nobody knows the answer to this. But you know, there's only 149 million people working right now. And there were 152 million people working in February of 2019. So there's 3.5 million fewer people working right now than there were in 2019. But there's 10 million jobs, right? So there's more jobs available than there were in 2019. And it's across, like you're saying, all industries, all pay levels. And so I understand the training point. But there must be other things that are holding people up from taking these jobs
0: no there are i mean when you think about just run through a few things that, that i have child care is one thing you and i know this from boston we have great child care in boston and massachusetts but unfortunately what the pandemic has done has decimated many of the child care facilities in our city access and access to to be able to pay for those that's another issue so a lot of parents are, are struggling with that Secondly, a lot of women left the workforce in the beginning of the pandemic. A lot of mothers still staying out of the workforce and some fathers as well. I think what's happening is a lot of people that we had two incomes coming in during the pandemic. They realized maybe we can survive on one. Somebody's going back and do a part-time work. So we had a whole bunch of people that have left the workforce there. And that ties into child care, adult care, as well as quality of life. You have people still fear of the pandemic. People are afraid to go back to work still because of the pandemic, dealing with the pandemic. That's another issue. The way I look at it is where are the people? What groups of people can we get back into the workforce? So number one, is there an opportunity for us to get people who retired early back into the workforce? Number one. How quickly can we get people that left the workforce because they just weren't satisfied with their job? They weren't making ends meet. And now they're struggling to get by, but they're getting by enough that they're, they're not fully back in. How do we find those people and how do we train those people to get those people back into the workforce? The child care issue has to be dealt with. That was in the Build Back Better bill the president had. He had both child care and universal pre-kindergarten. We have universal pre-kindergarten in the city of Boston. You can see how the benefits of that work that allows families the opportunity to send their kids to school, send their kids to good quality child care, and have the ability to go to work, number, number three. And then the last one, we really need comprehensive immigration reform in this country. You look at a city like Boston, 26 college universities in the city of Boston pre-pandemic and even now a little bit, lots of international students came into our city to get educated. They learned the skill. They maybe went to graduate school. And then there's really no pathway for those folks to stay in the country. So we're losing all that talent. We're losing all that talent when they graduate and going back. And then we have 11 million undocumented people in our country, of which many live in urban America, and they're working right now under the table, and they're trying to make ends meet. We have opportunities right now, and and we've always been a country that's been very dependent on immigration. I know there are naysayers out there that says, you know, we don't want immigration. Well, if we don't have immigration, it's going to do serious damage to our economy. I don't care if the president's a Republican or a Democrat, it doesn't matter. If you talk to a business person in America, Republican or Democrat, every single one of them is saying that we, not every single one is saying this, but every single one should be saying we need comprehensive immigration reform, really. And we need a pathway to be able to, to work in the United States of America.
1: Is it hard to get people across America to wrap their heads around that? Because you were front and center here in Boston. You saw exactly what you're saying. You saw lots of incredibly talented people come here to be educated, and then they would have to leave again. And so you saw that brain drain happening. So you understand it. Firsthand. Do people understand across the country who could make decisions like this how important it is to the future of America? I mean, if you just if you just look at the numbers that are coming out of the labor department right now, like if we fill those three and a half million jobs and we get back to where we were in February of two thousand nineteen, there's only there's less than three million people left in the workforce to fill like seven million jobs. It's like, yeah.
0: I, I think that, you know. When I when I talk to a CEO of a company, I ask them about immigration just to see where they're feeling. Almost every single one to a person has said yes, that'd be great immigration reform. But it's it's become over the last twenty years such a hot button issue. But our future, our economy depends upon it. And I think that you know having these jobs filled, which allows us the opportunity to bring in more tax revenue into our societies. Uh, allows cities and towns to benefit from that tax revenue as well, not just here in the federal government, but on a local level as well. It's really what it's needed right now. And, you know, the president has a bill, was in the bill back better bill. And historically, it's been a Republican Democratic bill that's passed Congress. It has not been a one party bill. It's been both sides of because they understand. So I think what we need here is the business community to really step up and say, wait a second, we need this bill because we have these jobs that are unfilled. and, And then Also, when the last administration came down against immigrants and was walking down borders, quite honestly, I had college universities in my office at City Hall, well, actually on Zoom because it was COVID, uh, (laughs) Zoom at City Hall, uh, basically saying to me, this is not right and and this is going to hurt our economy, hurt our schools, hurt us moving forward. So we really need to think our pathways forward.
1: I feel like from the business community side, people, they are rallying. Like the H-1B visas get filled. It's in like minutes now, right? Yeah,
0: But that's a small piece of it. I think we need a bigger immigration bill than the H-1B, H-2A. I work with Homeland Security on the H-2B visa program, which we expanded this year, added 20,000 more visas to the supply. But that's a grain of salt compared to what we need. We have to do more than that. And I think that there's an opportunity here for us to do more. I keep looking to my right. Capitol Hill is right there. I can see it right outside my window here. So I hope they can get together up there and, and, and figure something out here because it, it really is about the future of our economy. And, you know, right. when I go out to dinner anywhere, but in use Boston, um, you know, I, every time I go somewhere, somebody grabs me and says, you know, we don't have anyone in the back washing. We don't, we don't have enough servers. We don't have enough people doing this, doing that. I mean, those are jobs historically that have been filled by new Bostonians, newcomers, and that's a launching pad for them into better paying jobs.
1: You no, know, that's a good point. So you talked a little bit about training and building up the workforce that way, and you launched a Good Jobs initiative at the Mayor's Conference. Could you talk a little bit about what the Good Jobs initiative is and how you would like to see mayors participating in the labor market?
0: Yeah, the Good Jobs initiative really is a one-stop shop. Historically, that governments, whether it's local or state or federal, have always been you know working to empower workers, to get better information out there for people, fighting for better wages. And w- what this does, it's kind of a one-stop shop to make sure that when as we create jobs or as jobs are getting filled, they're good quality, strong jobs, and that families have opportunities, people have opportunities to get it to the middle class. And we're going to be updating our websites, both for employees and employers, helping people on pathways to entrepreneurship. We saw an increase in entrepreneurship this year, 7%, which is a pretty big number considering where we have been. Creating pathways for that, looking for companies that people that are starting companies. How do we help them with with creating the opportunities for benefits, what the, their rights for their employees and their rights for the employer as well? So we're, we're creating all these different spaces with with the Good Jobs Initiative. So as we move forward here in the next couple of weeks, here, we're going to be getting more information out on that across the country.
1: That's so interesting. Would you, you know, we did that guaranteed income work in Chelsea. Just like
0: what you did in Chelsea and you didn't do it siloed. You brought it all into one shop and you went with it. It's the same thing. It's the same premise here with the good job initiative.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. So can we go zoom into Boston for a second? And um, I know you still keep your finger on the pulse here. Can you talk about how, what's happening in the labor market here? You know, wow. is it different than across the country or is it very similar? And what are the major things that Boston needs to think about in wow. recruiting and retaining?
0: You know, I, I think that, you know, I read a story talking about, uh, I think, 222,000 jobs were added last year. Uh, you know, the Boston market in some ways is a little different because I think a lot of people uh, went to Zoom. We didn't lay a lot of people off. However, our our restaurant and hospitality industries got, got crushed.
1: Hammered, um, yeah. You know,
0: when we had to shut the commercial center down, uh, that hurt our business long term. Uh, lots of retail got hurt as well. The Downtown crossing the area, the seaport, they came back a little bit. I was talking to Jeremy Scholar a couple weeks ago. You know, some of that came back on the seaport. Downtown is still uh, still struggling a little bit to come back. So uh, the the retail and the hospitality, we, I think we have to do more work in, in the Boston area. I think a lot of the companies we have, you know, uh, the, the the tech companies, the wayfares so all those different companies that we have in the city, you know, they didn't lay people off. So they didn't lose a lot of people, at least. In the beginning of the pandemic, I think that maybe some people are leaving higher level. I think Boston will come out strong after the pandemic as well. We don't have a lot of manufacturing per se in the city. So those jobs, those places didn't shut down. We didn't lose those folks in in those areas. So I think Boston long term will recover faster uh, because I don't think we have as far to come back as other parts of this country.
1: Right. So we still are back to worrying about housing costs and worrying about transportation costs and things like that.
0: Yeah, housing costs a big issue in the country. It's not just a Boston issue. And the bottom line with housing costs, and everyone has their different opinions of it, it's a supply and demand issue. It's a supply and demand issue. And pre-pandemic, there were tens of thousands of people going towards cities and moving from rural and suburban America into cities. And the issue was supply and demand. To be honest with you, in Boston, there was no strong plan when I became the mayor of Boston. We laid out a plan to create 69,000 units of new housing by the year 2030. And also we changed the inclusionary developments so that we'd have more affordable housing in those developments. We're gonna see the benefits of those now because that was four or five years ago, when we laid it down. So we're seeing the housing units built, but we have to be very careful, I think, moving forward in this country with the not in my backyard mentality. We need more housing in America, not just Boston. We need more housing in America and we need to build all kinds of housing for all different incomes all across America and that you put more supply on the market, you bring the cost down. And part of the reason right now is that the costs are going up because the supply is not there. And there's been lack of a federal plan. The president dealt with it in his Build Back Better agenda. He put some money in there for housing. Uh, that's why I think it's important that that portion of the Build Back Better and other portion passes because you need some federal investment. You also need to keep the private developers engaged and interested in building housing because they do it the quickest. When the government builds housing, It doesn't always happen the fastest. When the private side builds housing, it happens quick. So I think there's a balancing act there to make sure we continue to work with private developers. And that's what I did when I was the mayor. And that's what I recommended here at the White House, too, the other day, is how do we make sure that we're having this private investment, maybe with some support from the government a little bit, to push up the low-income numbers a bit.
1: And last question I have for you, and this is maybe a little more, you know, heart driven question, but you talk about the fact that you would like businesses to really think about the jobs that they're putting into the market and make sure that they're high quality jobs. And, you know, we talk a lot about at this foundation about the impact of the pandemic on kids and how education needs to take a deep breath and realize that it's in a completely different paradigm and and really understand where teachers and children are today. Do you think a similar thing needs to happen with companies, you know, and leaders within companies and really understanding how the pandemic has impacted their workforces? Are there things that would speak to quality of jobs that you would ask them to include that are more about understanding the mental health issues that one may be grappling with, the deaths that certain folks in different communities have seen, those sorts of things. Is that something that you talk to business leaders about?
0: You know, first of all, I think we have to really think about just on the second part of that question, mental health. We have to look at a whole differently in this country. The stresses in America right now, you can feel it in the street. I mean, you can feel it when you're talking to people. People are on edge. People are jumpy. People have strong opinions about every single thing. And before they had strong opinions before, but now it's on everything. Businesses need to create those spaces for their employees to where to go to get the help. Maybe not set up a counseling service inside the company, but have have the availability of where, where does somebody go for help and have your managers be a little more, including your managers, having a little more attentive to maybe stresses and changes in personality for people because because this pandemic, whether it's been loss of life or sickness or worried about loss of life or worried about the pandemic or worried about losing your job, worried about losing your house, there's been a there's been a lot of stress here in the last couple of years, all across the world. So I think that that's one of the things. And secondly, I mean, my advice I'd give to business leaders, big business, I'm talking about, as you think about building your own front office, people are very intentional about making sure that that it's a good connection in that office, making sure that everyone yeah. meets in that office, whether it's 500 people or a thousand people in your front office alone. You almost have to think about that all the way to the company now. How do you make sure that the comp- the person that comes in off the street, you want them to feel like a, like the kind of the nostalgic of the fifties. When you worked for a company, you worked for it for your whole career. How do you yeah. get that back in here in America now, where you go to work for a company and that company is almost an extension of your home? And I think there has to be some of that now because I think there's an opportunity for us to reimagine the workplace in that way to to get people more bought into the vision of the company. Rather than treat the company as a job to get a paycheck and go home on Friday and not have to go back till Monday, how do you create something a little different? I think think that that also can happen in, in this time
1: right now. Yeah, I think you're right. Everyone needs a giant bear hug right now. Yeah. Secretary Walsh, thank you so much for talking with us today. We appreciate it. It's always so fun to talk to you, so thank you.
0: Thanks, Jill. I hope I do as well, and I'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you for listening to my conversation with U.S. Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh. We're experiencing unprecedented changes in the way we work, and leaders like Secretary Walsh are working hard to help our country understand, adapt, and power through this new normal. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a good day.